So Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. So from our text today, we're going to be investigating what is the meaning of verse 7 when Jesus says that he opens and shuts. What that means in light of the promises that he, that he then makes to those that keep his name and overcome is told to us in verse 12. Because according to those who hold to dispensational theology, they say that the letter to the church of Philadelphia, that this is all part of the dispensation of grace. And it, cor- it specifically corresponds with the church age that started at the Second Great Awakening, the time that all was right in the world. And the church, as they call it, began to make America great again. And this includes our current era as well. And the reason that they say this, the reason that they say that the promise made to this church, that it is to this church in our age, is because of the open door of verse 8. It has to be the same door that is spoken of in chapter 4, verse 1. And the promise made to this church of keeping the church from the hour of testing, that has to mean, they conclude, the rapture of the church which is spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, when Christ returns to punish a God-rejecting world. But are they right? Is this what the Lord is meaning by the door that he opens, by the promise to keep these saints from the hour of testing? Because honestly, that sounds kind of nice. I mean, I really like the idea that at some point in the near future that I'm going to get a one-way ticket to heaven. I'm not going to have to suffer anymore. I'm not going to have to deal with the nonsense of life anymore. That sounds very nice. We have to admit that it does to our flesh. And let's be real. It is our flesh that that sounds nice to But this cannot be the meaning of this letter for the simple reasons that how would it be of any benefit to those saints who first received it? You're thinking, well, yes, but this letter, this book, the Bible is is written to us now, here, but every letter, all of them, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, they were all written to specific people, in specific times, in specific places. And every letter had meaning to those people that it had been written to, as was this. And the understanding and the meaning of this letter, we must read it in context to get it, and then allow Scripture to define and explain Scripture for us. This tiny letter to this very small church made multiple references to another single Old Testament letter, one that is key in understanding what the meaning of this letter is. It references many times that prophetic letter that was penned by Isaiah. And this letter to the church in Philadelphia, it begins as all the other letters do, with a description of Christ taken from that larger description of him found in chapter 1, and then ending with that very common, he who has an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the church formula. 
And as we've seen from all five previous letters, it's what Christ says about himself at the beginning of each of those letters that makes what he says in the body of that letter actually matter. And by the way, as we study through the book of Revelation, this entire letter, this is the same truth that we need to hang on to. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we're supposed to keep that truth, that it is a revelation of him, at the forefront of our minds as we read and interact with everything in this book. Here, in our, church, in our letter today, in his description of himself, he uses that description, one that he pulls from the book of Isaiah. Oh, and by the way, the book of Isaiah that also is a revelation of Jesus Christ. He opens this letter with this. This is what he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says. The letter that is the book of Revelation, it's not a standalone letter or book. In fact, it is merely just a summation of all things. In fact, it's the fulfilling of that promise that's made back in Genesis 3.15. So if you desire to understand the book of Revelation, all you need to do is go back to Genesis 3.15 and read the cliff notes of this book. There we're told, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The letter of Revelation is just merely the full telling of Genesis 3.15. And nothing told to us in the book of Revelation hasn't been at least alluded to earlier in the Bible. And this letter, the one that we're reading, is like all the Bible, written to a specific people. And it is a love letter to a specific group of people. This church. A church that was, that was very small, seemingly insignificant, with no political or cultural power, in the midst of a very wealthy and important city, one that was filled with very influential, false religions. And to understand what is being said to this church, we're going to have to spend time this morning in that other revelation of Jesus Christ, in the book of Isaiah. if we're ever going to understand this book and even why he's pulling from that book. So before we can even do that, though, we need to understand some things about the book of Isaiah. We need to understand what the theme of that book is. And the theme for that book, that is given to us in chapter 1 of the book of Isaiah. When this proclamation is made, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh speaks. Verse 2. The book of Isaiah is all about God. And the name of the prophet that God used to write this book, that points to a specific attribute of God. The name Isaiah, his name means the Lord is salvation. But salvation from what? And salvation to whom? See, we need to understand what salvation is if we're going to understand the meaning of this letter to the church in Philadelphia. As I said, the book of Isaiah is also a revelation of Jesus Christ, simply because it is 
the only book in the Old Testament that gives us the most insight, the most clear, intimate description of the coming Messiah prior to his advent. It's that book that tells that he will rule in justice and righteousness, chapter 9, verse 7, and then again, chapter 30, 32, verse 1. But the book of Isaiah also presented an aspect of the coming Messiah that was very offensive to the religious Jews. It speaks of this Messiah as one who will suffer. Isaiah chapter 53 vividly describes the Messiah suffering for sin, suffering for the sins of his people. It speaks of the Messiah as being cursed, afflicted, despised, and rejected. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53 told them and us, but Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And the religious Jews couldn't understand that apparent contradiction that was being stated concerning this Messiah. So they did, and they still do, exactly the same thing that the left-behind guys have done with the book of Revelation in their interpretation of this book. They made it all about people and not God. In fact, the religious Jews up to this day, if you ask a religious Jew what the book of Isaiah is about, they will tell you that this book is about the nation Israel and not God. Interestingly enough, the dispensationalists will also tell you that the book of Isaiah is about God's love for people and not God. And this is why we need to understand that name of Isaiah. God is salvation. We need to understand the why of the coming Messiah. We must understand why he came. Why would God the Father send his Son? Why would God the Son willingly come? Why would God the Spirit empower and proclaim that Messiah? And as we sit here, we come up with one, uh, with one word answer for that question. People. That's the answer. We think that what God has done, he did this because of people. We're just that valuable. I mean, after all, we are made in his image. And we cannot imagine that he wouldn't love us. I mean, after all, we're us. We don't understand that we are completely reprehensible to God. And yes, the name Isaiah does mean the Lord is salvation, but we are not intended to infer from that name that it has anything to do with us, any of us, or even all of us. God is salvation. That is all about him. People are not the theme of the book of Isaiah any more than they are the theme of the book of Revelation. God is the theme of both books. And the main theme, the main meaning of Isaiah is found in chapter 48 of Isaiah, verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake I act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another. God is not for man. God is not for ethnic Israel. God is for God. 
And God is only for the church because the church is found in him. And contained in the book of Isaiah, there are two parallel truths being told that run throughout that thing, that book. There awaits destruction from God for people. And there awaits salvation from God for people. Salvation for some, destruction for others. But again, it brings us back to that question, what is salvation and what is destruction? Because these two themes seem to be in contradiction with each other. And we don't understand that God is salvation. And for that reason, he will receive glory from the salvation of some. And he will receive glory from the destruction of others. And we get offended by that truth. And we're confused by that truth because we don't understand the holiness of God. Just how completely other he is is in us. And we don't understand our own sinfulness. How completely we have corrupted ourselves, separating ourselves from God. And for this reason, we don't understand God. And let me show you just how much we don't. Listen to this single verse from Isaiah chapter 30. For thus, Lord Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your might. But you were not willing, and you said, No, for we will flee on horses. Therefore you shall flee. And we will ride swift horses. Therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee at the threat of five until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop and as a standard on a hill. Verse 15. We think those verses I just read that they are an offer of protection that people refuse. We actually think that people can reject the protection of God as if he is not sovereign enough to have his will come to pass. Those verses that I just read, they are not an offer. They are a command. Just as verses 1 and 2 of chapter 55 are a command. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good. Delight your soul in riches. And that is not an offer either. It is a command. And this is why we get confused about the name of Isaiah. God is salvation. Because we think that all people can either come to Christ and that some refuse They are just that powerful and stupid. Or we think that the command to come to Christ is not made to all people. Even though we have been told very clearly in Acts 17.30 that God is now commanding men that everyone, everywhere should repent. And we don't understand Because we don't understand what Isaiah means. God is salvation. 
And this is why Isaiah 66, 24 is either hard or confusing for us. There we're told, then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. And they will be an object of contempt to all mankind. And we think that the command to remit that can't be made for all people since God is sovereign. Or we think, well, God has done his very best. And if anyone goes to hell, they do so over his dead body. But we don't understand. We don't understand because we don't understand that God is salvation. And then we will make him in our image and either approach the book of Isaiah as we do the church, the letter to the church of Philadelphia from a very man-centered lens. Because it's when you view both of these sections of scripture, Isaiah and Revelation, with a high view of man and a low view of God, that you will think, well, God has just done the best that he could. And... You know, up to this point in history, I mean, he, he sent his son to die. But the people just keep ignoring him. And he's put up with it for a while, but not much longer. He's about had it with humanity. And when he does, he's going to pull those smart people from the world, those that took that offer of their best life now, and then he's going to punish the rest that have rejected his atoning blood that he shed for them. Which is why they read verse 8 the way that they do. I know your deeds. Behold, I have given before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. But to understand verse 8, we must understand what is meant by the name of Isaiah. God is salvation. His name is not God offers salvation or God did all he could to save or all he could to save people if they would just accept Jesus and apply the blood to themselves. That name, God is salvation, that is a descriptor of God. It's not describing something that he did. And verse 8 can only be true because of what is said of Jesus in verse 7. This is what he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says. What he says in verse 8 is only valid because he is holy and true. Now allow me to demonstrate why that open door in verse 8 can't mean the rapture. Because there's another time that this exact same statement is made concerning Jesus. In the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 10. There it reads, How long, O Master, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The people that are saying this those are the ones that have undergone tribulation. They that have remained faithful, that have overcome. And also in that verse, there's also a term that's used from our verses today, one that explains our verses from today. That, that, ver, or that, those, that phrase is this, those that dwell on the earth. 
But verse 7 from today, whether or not you knew this or not, was taken directly from the book of Isaiah, chapter 22, verse 22. There it says, Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder, and when he opens, no one will shut, and when he shuts, no one will open. But there in Isaiah 22, 22, that's not speaking of a divine being. That's actually speaking of a human, just a more a normal human. He's not divine. The he that he's spoken about in Isaiah 22, his name is Eliakim, who is a type of that last man that is being spoken about in our verses. And his name, Eliakim, is also important in understanding the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Eliakim means God will raise up for better the resurrection of God. And both of these meanings, both point to the one who's being spoken of in our verses today. In verse 8, Jesus said, I know your deeds. Behold, I am given before you an open door which no one can shut because you have kept You have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. And we need to understand what door he's talking about because according to Hal Lindsey and the Left Behind guys, that door is heaven. And this is where they veer off that narrow path and end up going a completely wrong way. Because that door that Christ opens, that no one can close, who shuts and no one can open, that door is not heaven. It does contain heaven. But it's not heaven. That door is the meaning of the name of Isaiah. That door is the meaning of the name of Eliakim. God is salvation. God will raise up. He is the resurrection. Salvation is not heaven. And heaven is not the same as salvation as the left behind guys tell us that it is. God is salvation, and he is the resurrection. He is the gate that you must enter through for salvation, John 10, 9. He is the true light that is the light of all men, John 8, 12. And Jesus said this of himself, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Understanding that that salvation, that this is the door that no one can close, this is important because it's the meaning of because you have a little power. You see, in that city, there were those who belonged to a religion that claimed that they were of God. And they did have power. And they did have influence in this city. And they were persecuting this little, seemingly insignificant church. But this church was proving that it was the true church. It was proving whose it was. Because it was keeping 3 John 11, where we're told, Beloved, don't imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. What little power did they have that the open door was given to them for? That's explained to us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, 
not by your works, but because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And this is vital in understanding the rest of what Jesus then tells the saints in Philadelphia. He tells them in verse 9, Behold, I'm giving up those of the synagogue of Satan, those who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and make them know that I have loved you. And know this is not anti-Semitic. It has nothing to do with an ethnic people but it does deal with people who claim to be of God and were in fact not. Because the religious Jews in this city, they were historically known to be very well off and very corrupt. And they, like the religious Jews of today, they claimed that they are the children of God and that the book of Isaiah is all about them. But what Christ does is once again, he draws from that book of Isaiah in verse 9 and says to these who are true followers of Christ, the same thing that he says to his followers in Isaiah 43, verse 4. There he tells them, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. So he says in verse 9 here, that he will make those who claim that they are of him, to know that he loves this church and not an ethnicity or a false religion. And he will demonstrate to that, that to them, that he will demonstrate that truth of Isaiah 43, 4, that it is the same truth as told to us in Revelation 3, 9. And the last part of Revelation 3, 9 is important to grasp if we're going to understand verse 10. How will these false Jews know that God loves the church? It's important for us to understand this in our own culture, in our own time. How will they know this to be true? Verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. These false Jews will know that the true church is the true Israel because of Isaiah, because of Eliakim, because God is salvation, because he is the resurrection. And it's his power that has made it possible for these people to be his saints, those that verses 7 and 8 are talking about. And it's because of the meaning of that name, Isaiah, God is salvation. This is what's going to keep them, maintain them as his joy through the word of his perseverance as told to us in verses 8 and 9. But you're thinking, but David, what about that keep you from the hour of testing which is going to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth thing? I mean, how can this not mean that he's going to take them out of the world before he starts sending the plagues and his wrath on the world? Well, before we get there, let's deal with what is said before that. Because he tells this church, because they have, and by the way, that have also means they will keep the word of his perseverance. And what is meant by that phrase? What is the word of my perseverance? Well, perhaps Philippians 1.29 can shed some light on that. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for his sake. Or perhaps Matthew 10, 22, 
You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Or maybe Acts 14.22, encourage, encourage them to continue in the faith, saying, through many afflictions we must enter the kingdom of God. But the clearest understanding of what is meant can be found in the book of Hebrews. First in chapter 5, verse 8. Although he was a son, speaking of Jesus, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. But the clearest understanding of what, that, what this means is found in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we have such a great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, laying aside every weight in the sin which so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, not look for a way out, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary, fainting in heart. This is the word of perseverance of Christ. How did Christ prove that he was the Son of God? He suffered, and God kept him. These saints will persevere. And understanding the why of our suffering is important. Why? It's their willingness to suffer for Christ. Why? That's going to be used to tell those other people, the false Jews, that this church is the ones that Christ loves. And we don't understand. Because we either don't understand the name of Isaiah or we don't value the name of Isaiah. See, because we've been promised by how that this verse, this means that we're not going to go through the tribulation period. There are those who will say, wait a second. God said here, the whole world, that must mean worldwide tribulation. The whole world means the whole world. Just like world that's used in John 3.16 means all people for all time. But how did this church how did the people, the saints in this generation, understand that phrase? How did the Christians understand what the whole world meant in the first century? Lucky for us, we don't have to guess. There's a couple other verses in the Bible that use that phrase. Luke chapter 2. Now it happened in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus for a census to be taken of all the whole world. Same word, same word phrase that's used today. What is meant there? Do we actually think that the Romans got in boats, sailed the Atlantic Ocean to come to the Americas to take a census? Or did they go to Upper Orient, to China, and take a census there? Did they go up to where Russia is now to take a census? The whole world there is the same meaning as that is given to us in Acts 17.6. Dragging Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men 
who have upset the whole world have come here also. Acts 19.27 explains how they understood the whole world. But also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be considered as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the whole world worship is even about to be brought down from her majesty. And the amazing thing is if you look at that phrase, if you go to the Strong's Concordance, a helpful tool if you don't have one, go to the Strong's Concordance and when you look for, at that word that's used in Revelation 3.10 for a whole world, which is the same word used in those other verses that I just read. If you look that word up in Strong's Concordance, you're going to find that it's no, the Strong's Concordance number 3625. Here's the definition of that word given in the Strong's Concordance. It's a feminine particle, present passive of okio, which means properly land, but specifically the Roman Empire. The saints in this generation they understood the entire world to mean the Roman Empire, not the worldwide end of the time, whole world destruction. And why do we think it's so hard? Why do we actually, are we so narcissistic that we think that Christ can't just be meaning this church here? Why do we think this is so hard that he would speak of the world in this manner? in a manner in which they would understand, because he's just done the same thing in speaking about the religious Jews of that city. Because that meaning, the synagogue of Satan, has no specific meaning to us in our setting. We have to look back at that church, to their situation, to understand that meaning. He's being specific to this church, to their situation, and the promise being made here in these verses is for these saints specifically, and then to all other saints after that. And that promise is based around the most important thing that is being said here. It's all about that open door which they have been given, which no one can close. It is the meaning of that name, Isaiah. God is salvation. He is the resurrection. This is spiritual. It's not physical. It's not about our best life now. And to understand that keeping from that hour, we need to go to the only other time in the New Testament that that same word phrase and those words are used, which ironically was also penned by the hand of John. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 17, which is the high priestly prayer of Christ. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 15. As we read through them, take note of that word kept or kept from. Verse 6, I have manifested your name from the men whom you gave me out of the world, and they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. That's the first use of that word. Ask yourself this, how is this possible to be said? How have they kept his word? All we have to do is just read the, the gospel accounts to know that these men didn't keep his word. 
So how is it possible that Christ can, can say here that they kept the word of the Father? I mean, is he grading on a curve? Are, are, are our best efforts, are they good enough for him? No, to understand how they kept his word, we need to finish this prayer. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understand that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I don't ask on behalf of the, whole, of the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And there it is, again, the same word. And that's how these men, how they kept the word of the Father. That's being explained there. Which is exactly the same thing that we're told in Isaiah, in his name. God is salvation. That's how they kept his name. He goes on. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And there is it again, verse 12. And how did the keeping happen? Who did it happen by? Who did it? Was it the disciples, or was it Christ? How much of the keeping did the disciples actually do there? And then the climax and the meaning of that verse and the verse from um, Revelation 3, verse 10 is given. Verses 13 through 15 of, Re of John chapter 17. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. And there is the fullest meaning of Revelation 3.10. Exact same word phrase. And what is it that the Son is asking the Father to keep them from? His wrath? He's speaking once again of that open door that no one can shut. He's speaking about the meaning of that name of Isaiah. God is salvation. All the keeping that is spoken of in John 17 can only happen because of verses 1 through 3 of John 17. When Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son might glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And again, Isaiah, Eliakim, God is salvation. He is the resurrection. And we need to understand what is meant by verse 10 of Revelation 3. It's important in our understanding of not only our salvation, but also our Christian life as well. It all ties back in that conundrum of the reason for the perseverance of these saints. Them persevering during and through suffering. That this is the test 
that we're told about is for those who dwell on the earth. Saints, it's your remaining in Christ that is a test for those who dwell on the earth. And that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, in the book of Revelation, it is used multiple times. It is always directed to a certain subset of humanity. I read Revelation 6.10 earlier. That was speaking about that certain subset. Revelation 10.11 is a great example of who these people are. And those who dwell on the earth, they are the ones who will rejoice over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And ask yourself, what did the two prophets do? They persevered. But, but how is our remaining faithful through persecution and testing? How is this the test on the world? The same thing that Paul said in Romans 8. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Saints, it's in our understanding that it is our remaining in Christ even when it makes no sense, it's then that the true, test, the true test for the unregenerate happens. And us remaining, us keeping ourselves in the love of God, that doesn't just mean when they're coming after us with knives and torches. It's also the steadfastness of just keeping the word of perseverance in our daily life. It's us clinging to our hope during the mundane, the normal life that is life. It's us getting up again and again and again and looking to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. This is the test for those that dwell on the earth because it is then that they are faced with the reality of that God that they are denying, the one that is commanding them to repent. And what is the benefit of keeping his word of perseverance? Verses 11 through 13. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. And his coming quickly can't be referring to the second advent. Because 2,000 years have transpired since this letter was written. It refers to the thing that will ensure that they will hold fast. And even the reward of holding fast. Because he is salvation. These saints have been given the spirit. Who has sealed them for all eternity. And because of this, they will be given the strength that they need to hold fast. And is this not the thing that we're concerned with in our daily life when we sit here? We don't think that we have the power to persevere. That we will persevere. But saints, the same thing is promised in verse 11 is the same thing that Jesus promised his disciples in Matthew 10 when he said, when they deliver you over, not if, 
when they deliver you over, don't worry about what or how you were about to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it's the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you, verses 19 and 20. And to them he says in verse 12, he who overcomes, and this is not a maybe, this doesn't mean that if, that if you are of him, that you may not make it, that only those that are radically saved will. He is saying that since he is Isaiah, God is salvation, that all that are kept by the Father, in the Father, will be kept. And he's telling all of us something wonderful, something that awaits them and us because we will overcome. He says to them, I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, and he will never go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. And it's not by accident the temple is mentioned here, the same letter that the, syn the synagogue of Satan is mentioned. It's an important theme that will be drawn upon later in another sermon. But we need to understand what is being contrasted here. It's the open door that's being compared to that closed door. It's the people who are claiming to be Jews but are liars with those that Christ loves that the Father has kept. And this is why the name that was highlighted to the church of Sardis is once again highlighted here. Because we've had the name of the city of God written on our souls. We've had the name of Christ written by the Holy Spirit for all eternity, written, stamped, etched, burned on our souls. Can't be erased or scratched out. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Saints, this letter that was written to this church so long ago, this is a letter of hope. And that hope is found in that name. The hope in this letter is found in that open door. It's not found in escaping. We have been given that name to bring glory to God as we persevere. And saints, God must be of more value to us than an easy, pain-free, fun-filled life here. He has to be if you're truly saved. And as he keeps us, and as we keep ourselves in the love of Christ, because he keeps us, we are meant to know that the name of Isaiah and the name of Eliakim, they are true. God is salvation. And he is the resurrection. And neither one of those things are based on us. Saints, don't worry about persevering. You have persevered every single day in your life up until this point. How many of us here today didn't want to be here this morning? We had things we had to endure. May not be feeling the greatest, but here we are.
How many of us this week have dealt with really hard things that we don't necessarily agree with? And yet, we get up every morning and we open our Bibles and we thank God. God is salvation. He is the resurrection. And you will persevere. And this is the test for the world. Praise God for this truth. Let's pray.